Two and a Half Admins, episode 83. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, a reminder about your webinar. Yeah, Jim and I recorded a webinar about improving recovery objectives using OpenZFS. And if you haven't seen that already, uh, you missed it live, but the recording's up on our website. Check it out. Check it out. Learn all about your recovery time and recovery point objectives and how to improve them. Link in the show notes as usual. Backblaze has come out with another report, but this time they've included SSDs as well as hard drives, and it makes for some quite interesting reading. It does, although, you know, in true Backblaze form, uh, the SSDs they bought are basically all just hot garbage. Backblaze, they, they have a, uh, they have kind of a guiding principle of buying the cheapest drives for pretty much everything because the idea is to have lots of everything and have plenty of redundancy so you don't necessarily need to spend a ton of money on having the most resilient, the most reliable equipment, because that's not where you're building in your fault tolerance. With that said, it's it doesn't look so much like they bought the cheapest SSDs as just the absolute worst ones. <laughs> I am not seeing a single model of solid-state drive that I would willingly deploy in any of my machines anywhere. Some of the sizes seem awfully small to me. Uh, I guess for 2019, maybe those sizes weren't so bad. Well, that's because they're not intended to be proper storage drives. These aren't really running side-by-side with rotational hard drives as actual customer data storage medium. These are just boot drives. They're not just boot drives. Uh, Backblaze does point out that they yeah, they, they write some logs and a little bit of other data to them, but it's, it's not seeing the same usage pattern as the actual Rust disks that are storing the real data going on there. They note one really high annualized failure rate for the uh, crucial CT250 solid-state drive. And, um, you know, on the one hand, you got to take it with a grain of salt because it's a a rather small sample. They had two drive failures out of 80 drives. They came up with an annual failure rate of uh, 43.22%. And that's why you always hear me complain about their annualized failure rate calculation. Yeah. Now, part of that is because the average age of those drives that died was 0.4 months. Yeah, which means they're on, they're on the, the early nasty part of the bathtub curve. And solid-state drives absolutely do have bathtub curves, similar to the way that rust drives do. I will also say that I, I unfortunately do have considerable experience with crucial SSDs, and I am not surprised to see them heading the list for things just completely going wheels up on them. Yeah, and, you know, these are basically the cheapest ones you get off Amazon when you can't get something else. But usually you can get something better for $2 more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, you, won't find a, uh, you won't find a single Samsung drive on the list, which is my usual go-to. There's no Kingston, which are, uh, you know, they, they don't quite have the name cachet of like a Samsung. But I've used quite a few Kingstons and found them very reliable, uh, several models of them. My brand preference for Kingston mostly comes from RAM, where they've always been very good and very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was willing to try out their SSDs. And yeah, the ones I've had have been good. The Enterprise ones from Kingston are especially, they are fantastic. I can't say enough good things about them. A really good QoS built in. So if you've got a server with you know a lot of really high contention, a lot of you know different processes all looking to access data at once, the, uh, the QoS built into the Kingston SSDs makes an enormous difference in terms of predictability for latency when you've got all these competing processes that are all looking for data. Uh, you don't end up with a situation where you've got one process that's blocking for just an inordinate amount of time because the drive has decided to fulfill the requests of a bunch of different processes ahead of it without you know much regard to when they came into the system. 
They're not necessarily the absolute fastest drives out there. If you do a simple, you know, FIO run on them, you'll find that they're not quite as fast as, for example, you know, like a Samsung 8 Series Pro, uh, you know, which are all MLC, very good prosumer drives. But if you hit them with a lot of processes at once, you'll see the uh, the latency goes through the roof really quickly on the prosumer drives where it stays just absolutely flat as a board on the Kingstons. But yeah, you're not seeing any Samsung. You're not seeing any Kingston. It's pretty much just crucial Dell uh, one micron model and a whole bunch of Seagate. I mean, not even in Western Digital. On the cheap end, I've been pretty happy with Western Digital Blue solid state drives. They do pretty well. Yeah, I have, uh, I think, one of the black uh, higher end NVMEs in my machine here. But Backblaze has quite a good relationship with Seagate uh, as far as bulk buying their other drives. And, you know, that probably makes sense for the SSDs as well. You know, if you want to buy a thousand SSDs, talking directly to a manufacturer where you're already buying hard drives from might make that easier. Although that, you know, raises the question of why do they not see more from Western Digital? Of course, part of that might also be, did Western Digital sell much in the way of SSDs back in 2019? Yes. Okay. That was actually when I saw them. For, now, it was fairly new. Well, I guess they bought SanDisk, yep, right? Yep, so, yep. 2019 was when I first really saw them exploding onto the market. Um, it got to the point where if I wanted to get my usual Samsungs, uh, I would have to tell my local vendor you know, ahead of time, like, look, you need to stock some of these because left to their own devices, it was just you know a, a cabinet packed chock full of WD Blues. So can we learn anything about reliability from this then? A little bit. Uh, the number of drives are, are pretty low. And so it really makes their AFR numbers highly suspect. Uh, like even that crucial one, because they've had two out of 80 fail and they have an average age of 0.4 months, they give them a, an AFR of 43%, but their confidence interval is is 1% to 11,000%. <laughs> so that's a little different. Whereas, you know... Uh, totally fine, you guys. <laughs> Oh, this the one model of uh, Seagate SSDs, which they don't have a model number for, which I wonder if that's like an engineering sample or something. They've had one die out of 107, and they're on average a bit over two years old. And so they gave them an AFR of 0.9, and their confidence interval is 0.1 to 2.8. Like they say here, any failure rate in the 1% to 2% range is about what they expect. Anything higher than that is something to watch for. Anything lower than that is just bonus for them. And it seems to be about what they see with their hard drives. Like I think when we looked at it last, the HGST drives were like 0.5% and the Seagate drives were 0.9%. Out of all the models of SSD they tested, only four models did they actually have more than 100 of those drives to test with. Which means they're just, in that short amount of time, there's not a whole lot you can really learn from that. Yeah, like looking at their totals for 2021, they had 600,000 drive days of SSDs with 21 failures, giving them a 1.2 AFR. And I think in that same year for hard drives, their AFR was a bit higher, but it was with a very different number of drive days and uh, a very different mix of types of hard drives and so on and ages of hard drive. So it gets hard to compare them. You know, I saw some outlets say, oh, they say that SSDs are more reliable or less reliable. It's like, well, I don't think the numbers are strong enough to say either of those just yet. Well, I think it's also important to say you can't really just say SSDs are more reliable than hard drives or vice versa, because you've really got to narrow it down. Uh, some hard drives are just absolute garbage and you expect to start seeing checksum errors and you know drives dropping completely off the bus at any kind of scale almost immediately. Whereas if you go to not even necessarily enterprise drives, but just, you know, drives with a solid reputation for good construction, 
you want to talk about, you know, like your Seagate Iron Wolf, even, you know, NAS drives before you even get up into the actual enterprise territory. You don't see a lot of checksums out of those things. You don't see them, you know, just very quickly dropping off the bus. Yes, you will have a few fail if you manage enough of them. But if they make it past, you know, the the initial hump of the bathtub curve, you really just don't expect to see any problems with them for years, even at a fairly large scale. Whereas if you're putting, you know, like the old Western Digital Greens or, uh, you know, the Seagate Barracuda, any of these just garbage desktop drives, you know, you don't have to have many of them before you see them failing just all over the place in all kinds of different ways. And it's the same thing with solid state drives. If you buy garbage solid state drives, you're going to have garbage results. Now, the failure modes are also somewhat different. Most commonly, when a solid state drive fails, it's just gone. It just falls right off. You're not getting any data back out of it. You're not writing any more data to it. It is just plain dead. Whereas hard drives, you know, the rotating kind, more frequently you start seeing like, yeah, bad sectors, maybe see some garbage data coming off of them. Maybe they're slow to respond, but they eventually get there at first. More of a, well, you know, mechanical type of failure mode. Well, and, you know, some of them, if if it's, Certain mechanics that failed in the drive is just unresponsive and the same. And, you know, enterprise ones, sometimes you'll see things like the drive will go read-only when it's worn out. If the failure mode is just that you've wore out all the flash. Like I have some Intel 240 gig drives that are that have basically gone read-only. You can read all the data, but you can't write to it anymore. The other thing is like they have a nice graph here of their failure rates, and you can kind of understand why the, the AFRs are not is confidence inspiring. And just you see, oh, we had a, a 3% failure rate in Q3 of 2019 and a 0% failure rate in the next quarter, and then a 3% failure rate the quarter after that, and back to a 0% failure rate after that. You know, the numbers just, I guess, are not enough to give you enough statistical significance. It's just to iron out kind of the humps in the, in the graph. We've talked about amplification attacks in the past, but I read about one recently that seems to be on a different scale altogether. Yeah, so this one's a, a new method of DDoS amplification that does it by 4 billion fold. <laughs> uh, and it turns out, yes, that, that number is recognizable for a specific reason. And basically, it's a UDP amplification attack or reflection attack where you send it one packet and it will send up to 2 to the power of 32 packets in response, which is just over 4 billion. But, of course, it's not the fault of the uh, the Mitel servers because you're only supposed to put them on private networks. You don't make those publicly accessible. And as we all know, when you as a software vendor say, don't make this software publicly accessible, users will never do that thing. They will always have it behind a firewall. Yeah, uh, so it's the Mitel MyCollab and MyVoice Business Express collaboration systems. They've identified about 2,600 of these exposed to the internet and that are abusable. And basically, if you send them the right shape packet on port 10,074, they will respond with counter packets telling you how many. And you can just send something like 80,000 packets per second and have them reply 4 billion times the number of packets you send to whatever address you are spoofing to be sending to them from. Because it's UDP, you can just spoof it. In a controlled test the researchers did, uh, they were able to generate about 400 million packets per second of sustained denial of service attack uh, with just those 2,600 vulnerable machines. And they found that each one would generate roughly 100 gigabytes of amplifi- or amplified traffic 
destined for the target network spread out over something like 14 hours because that's how long it would take the machine to do the 4 billion packets at 80,000 packets a second. You know, at some point you have to ask yourself, do we really call this the abuse of a test service or do we just go ahead and call this, you know, a DDoS service for hire? I mean, it's not a whole lot different from literally paying some script kitty $5 a month for the use of his hacked VPS somewhere to run denial of service attacks on somebody. I really, really wish vendors that are building these, you know, quote, test, unquote, systems that are capable of these enormous amplification attacks, build in some freaking safeguards. Don't just put a line in the manual that says, make sure you firewall this port off from, you know, untrusted networks. Make it not work unless you go out of your way to turn that thing on. Build in some checks above and beyond that to see, hey, does it look like I'm internet accessible? If I am, maybe turn this off and yell at my operator. Don't just leave that out there and assume that every human on the face of the planet that touches your software will do the exact right thing with it. Well, and especially like this random UDP port definitely seems like something that should just be compiled out in the production build of the software and not ship to customers at all. The way they're describing this is like a counter thing, like it's counting the number of packets and so on. It doesn't seem like it's useful in actual testing. It's like a development interface and probably shouldn't have shipped to anybody at all. And the vendor just saying, oh, we said don't put it on the internet, seems like uh, quite a cop it. But yeah, uh, a, a single specially crafted packet sent to to one of these devices, which is supposed to act as a gateway for transferring PBX phone calls to the internet and vice versa, uh, will result in it sending 4 billion packets to a victim. This is fine.jpg. Apparently, it's actually uh, to allow customers to stress test the capacity of their internet network. It's like, yep, that sounds like a Danella service to me. That absolutely sounds like a thing that I need built into a phone server. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's also specifically the way that DDoS for Hire is marketed. Yeah. Rent our stressor and stress your website, not somebody else's website. And just again, why is this built into a phone server? I mean, if you want to stress test your network for just how much sheer bandwidth it can handle, there's this little tool called iPerf. You can install it. It's not difficult. Yeah, which makes it more confusing. that The vendor has released a software update. Uh, the patches is, except for the patch just automatically ensure the test facility is available inside of internal networks only. You mean you still didn't rip this out after that? <laughs> Could it be that they keep it in for compliance reasons? I don't think it's a compliance thing. It's, it's more like it's their internal speed test thing so that when a customer complains that their calls are dropping, they're like, well, run this test and make sure your internet can actually handle that many calls. It's just very poorly constructed. And obviously didn't have safeguards against being abused. Well, Joe, the question is, compliant with what exactly? Well, what I meant was that you may have checked the boxes on your compliance forms for this particular software, but then if you want to do other testing, then that's more bureaucracy. And so it's kind of like building it all in just makes that a little bit easier in theory when it comes to checking the right boxes. I mean, that's like making it easier to fill up your car by not having a gas cap. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like uh, Enterprise IT to you, though? No, actually, it really, really doesn't. It sounds like Bob the IT guy. Don't get me wrong, you can absolutely have plenty of Bob the IT guy in the Enterprise, and if you're really unlucky, he might be your director. 
<laughs> but that's not the way it's supposed to work. And honestly, it's not the way it usually works. Usually in enterprise IT, the thing that you're going to complain about is being mired down in, you know, layers upon layers of bureaucracy that are intended, however effective they are or aren't, at preventing exactly this kind of bonehead mistake in the first place. Yeah, like if you if you're doing the the type of compliance where you know you're ensuring crypto compatibility or whatever, every new version of your software needs to rerun through the whole compliance thing, which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, and so you try not to release very often uh, and have other ways of updating things that that aren't a new version of the software because each different one needs to be tested or like even if you're making a, like a Wi-Fi access point, it has to go through all this testing on the radios to make sure they they qualify with each different country's industry standards like FCC in the US and Industry Canada and I, I don't know what the thing in the UK that regulates uh, radio frequency signals is. But there's a reason why they try to keep using the same hardware for a long time before iterating because you had to pay for the compliance check on each of those. For this phone software, I doubt they would have that. Even if they did, this doesn't solve any issues with that. This, I guess, quote, solves, unquote, the issue that it might be complicated to tell your customer that they need to install iPerf or even that iPerf is pre-installed, that they need to actually shell into it and run it. But the ultimate trade-off is just saying, well, okay, for convenience sake, let's have a completely unauthenticated network service that absolutely anybody who reaches it can hit and generate a, a denial of service attack. That is, I don't have words for how freaking stupid that is. I mean, even if you want to have that as a network service, rather than asking somebody to shell in and run a tool like Iper from the command line, it needs to be authenticated. It needs to be authenticated from the factory. The authentication credentials need to be unique from box to box from the factory. This is something that even consumer routers largely have right these days. Like if you go out and you buy a cheap piece of crap, $120 Netgear home router, it was the least expensive thing you could find at the big box store and bring it home. When you open up the box, there is a paper sticker on your router with a combination of three random words. Like, I don't know, tree, apple, cow. And like, that is your Wi-Fi password by default for that router from the factory. And it's unique for every single one of those devices. They got that right for stakes as small as your local Wi-Fi at, you know, Joe Sixpack's house. And yet my teller out here putting these servers out here that people are going to put on the Internet in data centers with enormous pipes where literally you can just touch a port in DOS anybody you want, anywhere, at any time, with absolutely no authentication. It's ridiculous. And there's no legitimate case where you would want that test to persist for 14 hours straight, right? <laughs> Just use as much of my internet as you can to send out, fling UDP packets out to the internet for 14 hours straight. Depends on how bad you want to knock that one guy off the Fortnite server, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. 
Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Brett writes to us, I've tried unsuccessfully a number of times over the years, following guides online, to set my own mail server up. It just never works properly. What resources can you recommend to help me gain a proper understanding of all the working components of a Linux mail server? This is just for learning purposes, mind you. I have no delusions of running a mail server for an organization or even myself. As you said, Office 365 for the win. It's just going to require a lot of time and a lot of effort, to be honest. I never found a a clear working beginning to end guide either. Um, I've created one several times, but updates to packages tend to break it. And I, I'm no longer setting up so many mail servers that it's necessarily entirely completely fresh to the point that you don't have to adjust absolutely anything. With that said, in my opinion, I think the closest thing to what you're looking for is still my guide to postfix comma virtual domain setup at ubuntuwiki.net. That's the recipe for the type of mail server that I build. Now, the thing is, there, there really is no such thing as like, you know, one complete mail server package. Of necessity, you are always adding one thing to another thing and a little bit of glue to put the two of them together and, you know, until you you end up with a finished product that you hopefully don't hate too much. Now, if you you follow my recipe, you'll end up with Postfix for the mail server. You'll end up with, uh, you know, Dovecot for the IMAP server. You will end up with working certificates all the way around. You'll end up with, and I think this is personally very important, you get spam filtering during the SMTP conversation, which means that if somebody attempts to send you spam or something that your server thinks is spam, you will never send a bounce email. What you'll do instead is you'll terminate the conversation with a 4XX meaning temporary or a 5XX meaning permanent SMTP error, which means that the user's own mail server will let them know, hey, this server didn't like the thing that you sent and refused to accept it. So that way you're not burning innocent third parties when some spammer runs a Joe job, which means, you know, a whole bunch of spam that uses email addresses that it just collected from all over the web as the reply to. So then if you're actually sending bounce messages, now you're the one spamming everybody on the internet. My mail server recipe will never do that. With that said, some of the bits getting Postfix and Dovecot to work together are a little tricky Not so much because those packages don't like each other, but because they are different packages and they tend to run with different user IDs and getting the permissions right on everything can be a bit of a challenge, particularly because the UID and the GID by design are not the same from one system to the next. So you kind of have to do like this ticky little process of figuring out, okay, this is what my postfix UID and GID is, and this is what my dovecot UID and GID is. So here's the entry that I need to make in, you know, this part of the MySQL database to account for that. And in this text file here, that's a config file for one and that config file for the other over there, it does work. You can put it all together, but it's really never just a completely brain-dead easy thing. Recalling how I learned how all the moving parts work, 
Even though it's not what I would run as a mail server nowadays, you might look into the older recipes for Qmail. One of the things no. with Qmail is that each <laughs> different part that. of the process is a separate program. Like they'll come in one package, but and it's easier to understand the flow of how the mail goes through the system if, if you actually want to understand what's happening inside the mail server and getting to the point of like, you know, sending yourself a message by telnetting to the SMTP port and, and watching all the steps. Again, you know, not for production. This is just for understanding the process. And because that's the way QMail works, you can then insert pieces in each step. Like when you added spam assassin to, to filter spam at SMTP time, uh, in QMail, you would like, you know, replace this program with a shell script that called something else first and then the original program. And it just pipes everything through in the various steps. And it can make it a bit easier to understand the flow and how all the pieces work on the inside. That's not really very different from how you do it now with, with Postfix. Not really, except for it's just the config is, it is a bit more involved with the, the, the transports and all that stuff. And they're using their own protocol instead of just feeding mail through a pipe in a way where you could stop and look at it as a user. But I agree that Postfix is probably the thing you actually want to learn. So it might make more sense to, to start there. As somebody who ran large QMail installations for about 15 years, I violently disagree with your idea that somebody should be forced to try to walk through Dan Bernstein's mind in order to figure out how mail services work. I don't think that's a great idea. Well, I was suggesting like NetQmail, the the not QMail package of patches that actually made QMail usable. It's still... Mm. Al and I can disagree on things, and we disagree on this one. I, I don't think that's a great idea. If you follow my guide, you will find linked within it also, by the way, resources to how to use Telnet to test the various pieces of your mail server and, you know, see if delivery is working. There are specific guides on how to use Telnet to connect directly to either Postfix for SMTP or Dovecot for IMAP and actually directly type in the commands yourself. The same commands that, you know, a mail client like Outlook or Evolution or what have you would issue, you can issue those directly at the command line using Telnet to those ports. That's a very valuable exercise. And if what you really want to do is learn how email works, honestly, learning how to conduct an IMAP conversation and an SMTP conversation manually via Telnet is probably going to do you a lot more good than installing anything of the actual services does. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't saying it was the best way. I was just saying that QMail is how I learned. QMail is how I learned as well, and I'm trying to save other people from the pain that I went through. I mean, at the to be to be completely uh, you know fair here. Now, at the time, QMail was amazing. When your options were QMail or you know freaking SendMail, oh god, yeah. I mean, absolutely QMail all the way. But it didn't age well. A lot of the setup for QMail is, is a bit needlessly convoluted because Bernstein kind of has his own ideas about building everything as secure as it can possibly be with lots and lots of separate user processes that absolutely do not trust one another, which is a neat exercise in InfoSec. It's not necessarily the most conducive to just figuring out how to make mail server go. And it got more and more unwieldy and unmaintainable over the years because Bernstein, unfortunately, also had his own ideas about licensing that made it damn near impossible to actually package QMail entirely all the way matched up to date in one single piece that would be functional. The older it got, the more difficult that got, and the more you had to install Bernstein's pieces and then patch it with, you know, diffs 
after the fact because that was the only way you could do it and comply with the licensing. It, it's a freaking mess. Don't put yourself through that. I understood Bernstein's point of like, if it, only the bits that I made can be called QMail because I'm, you know, putting my name on it or whatever. But it turns out that works very, very poorly for open source software. I've only ever used XM, but no one ever seems to talk about that. I used it a bit. Yeah, it's it's had a bad security track record. It has. It's got an okay performance track record. The big thing that knocks XM out of the park for me is uh, I never really could find... That's There are other pieces in that recipe I haven't even mentioned. Uh, it also walks you through getting RoundCube integrated, which is webmail. It also walks you through getting Postfix Admin integrated, which is a web-based domain and user mailbox management piece. So once you've got the whole thing installed and configured, rather than having to go through and you know dick around with text files on the command line to set up like a new user account, you can just browse into the Postfix admin for your server and you can go in a nice little web interface and say, oh, I want to add this domain that I have registered and I've pointed the MX records to this box. And I want to add you know, these mailboxes and these aliases, and I want to delegate control of this domain to that person, but he doesn't just get the run of the whole server. He only has admin over, you know, his or her own domain, all this kind of stuff. Uh, the tooling for all that uh, to work with Exim, I found very lacking. Actually, that kind of tooling was one of the things that delayed my adoption of Postfix as well, because I had been accustomed to QMail admin way back in the day. Postfix admin replicates that functionality and yeah yeah so most of the use i had of uh, xim was with direct admin which was like cpanel but less terrible and worked on bsd and linux and direct admin used xim and it provided you know the web interface where i could create the domains and i could add resellers and delegate other people the ability to add new domains of their own and and do all that stuff with it. But that was built into DirectMan. It wasn't just like a package that you can just install that does that. Right. Well, in this case, it was actually using the text files on the file system to do it all. And they were just basically Unix password files. And then DirectAdmin provided a web interface to that. Yeah. Yeah. Postfix Admin stores the stuff in a MySQL database. The other thing I'll say about this for our listener, as far as wanting to learn how things work, uh, this is probably a big benefit for you. My recipe that I mentioned on UbuntuWiki.net, uh, it uses something called PostProx. And a small filter shell script ties everything together. So you can literally look at a shell script that ties together your filtering to your SMTP conversation and read and modify and change everything that it does. So that's kind of nice. It's not all just config files. Some of it is literally like you you get to pick how this stuff works. Yeah, I would say the one other thing is is probably, I'm guessing Jim's guide does it this way, but do it in layers, like get mail working and then get it delivering and then add the spam filtering. Yeah. One thing at a time so that if you break something, you know, I got this to work, now I added this and now that doesn't work anymore, I know where to look. But if I try to just do all of the layers at once and then something doesn't work, it's harder to tell what's going on. Yeah, you're correct. That is how the guide works. It does. There, There's only so much you can do in terms of that. I, I wish it was a little bit more straightforward in the way that you describe. It is... I will say it is as straightforward in that way as it is possible to put all these pieces together. Some of them interact in such complex ways that you really can't put them together entirely independently. But as much as possible, yes, I focus on get one piece put together and working, test it, make sure it's working, then move on to the next. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Jar Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. 
And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.